Okay, we have a split sermon today. It'll be brought to us by Mr. Reg Noland. It is entitled, A Parable of Walls and Bridges. messages that we've heard over the past few months have addressed the needs and the structure of the church. I'd like to continue that theme today, explaining the structure of the church by way of analogy. All right, so first, what, are, what is the purpose for the church? Uh, to, to paraphrase, modernize, and partially quote St. Augustine, um, the church is not a country club for the righteous, but a hospital for the sinners. As such, according to uh, According to Paul's letters to Timothy, the church should be a place of safety and support, a citadel of learning and instruction, a family of beloved brothers and sisters, an unquenchable source of inspiration and encouragement, a hall of loving correction, <clears throat> sometimes not quite so loving, um, uh, a haven from trouble, and an academic, uh, academy for uh, battle against the powers of darkness. Okay? As Timothy said, come on, let me make sure this works. All right, there we go. Okay. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, we find all scripture, of course, is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be... Uh, Complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Okay, so Reg is in teacher mode today. And let's see, begin by examining the role of the church, as I said, by way of analogy. An analogy, of course, is a way of gaining insight into something that um, unknown or unclear by comparing them to things that we are well, under, well known and well understood. So let us study the roles of walls and bridges to gain some insight into the role of the church. Okay. Imagine, if you will, two great medieval cities separated by a great river. Each city has a degree of uh, wealth, has adequate resources, plenty of skilled labor and mo uh, skilled and motivated labor, and had appropriate technology for manufacturing its primary product. However, the leaders of the city were each afraid of losing what they had and being overrun by the other city. So they built these uh, massive walls encircling the central city and surrounding farms that supported the city as a defense against the possibility of invading armies. Neither king could see inside the other city, and all of their envoys to the other city were rebuffed at the city gate. So each king then, relying on his own resources only, remained ignorant of the other society. Fear reigned in the heart of each of the kings. And I doubt that we can ever overcome such fear until there is a change in the human heart. 2 Timothy um, 1.7 says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and a love of a sound mind. But, and then uh, 1 John um, 4.18 says, There is no fear. No fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. He who fears has not been made perfect in love. 
All right. Clearly God warns us that fear corrupts the mind, tormenting us with a paranoia and suspicion. Here, over time, the fears of our two little kings grew as they channeled more and more of their scarce resources into the military-industrial complex in defense of their city. Time passed. Each city prospered and grew from within. Too much so, for their isolated success was actually their undoing. In other words, the population outgrew the finite walls that had been built earlier, which were a limitation upon their development. Ironically, each city needed what the other produced, but they didn't realize it since each city dwelt in isolation, in fear, and in ignorance of the other. These little kings built walls because they lived in the double fear. You realize that fear is twofold, two-pronged? Fear that something from the outside might invade their world and fear that their citizens might grow wise enough to seek escape from their domain. Robert Frost, in his great poem, Mending Wall, wrote, <coughs> Before I built the wall, I'd asked to know what I was walling in or walling out, and to whom I was like to give offense. Something there is that doesn't love a wall. In this poem, it is nature herself that repeatedly tears down the walls on their property line, forcing them to meet each year around springtime to re rebuild the wall between them, even though there was really no need of a wall at all to separate the apple orchard on one farmer and the pine forest in the other. It is merely a tradition that keeps them coming back each year. Good fences make good neighbors, says one of the neighbors. Walls arise out of fear and competition. Better is the spirit of cooperation, where two or more are pooling their efforts and their resources, working for a common goal. Solomon warns us against living in isolation, and we can all sympathize with living in isolation right now. Okay. Uh, let's see. Uh, it warns us against living in isolation, admonishing us that we prosper more from working in cooperation with others than from trying to do everything ourselves. This is from Ecclesiastes 4, uh, verses 9 through 13. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, um, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls. I'm falling and I can't get up, uh, for he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overwhelmed by another, two can withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Now, Solomon is reflecting on his own life here. Better is a poor and a wise youth than an old and foolish king who will be admonished no more. Okay, just like the two cities surrounded by the walls, um, some churches seem to have walls uh, around them, prohibiting those within from leaving, restricting those who attempt to enter with admission criteria and litmus tests. Catholicism requires that members learn their catechisms before confirmation. And while I have no first-hand knowledge, I repeat that, I have no first-hand knowledge of such restrictions, I have heard horror stories from some of you, um, from our longtime members, that our parent organization, the WCG, 
uh, regularly engaged in such behaviors, requiring almost an RSVP invitation before one would even be allowed to attend services, requiring black armbands and clipboards and people standing out in the parking lot taking down license plate numbers and threatened with expulsion for any disagreement with or disobedience of the leadership. Again, I don't know this for a fact, but these are the stories you guys have told me. Okay, Stories I've heard sound to me like less of a church and more of a cult or a police state uh, shutting up the kingdom of heaven. Now, I've also wondered why anyone would tolerate such behavior. But then, of course, I realized that I'm speaking to the hardheads who did not tolerate and separated instead. Right? Okay, further, I uh, understand that several of our daughter churches created after the breakup of the WCG still maintain some of these practices. But again, I don't know this for a fact. I asked Fran, why would anyone do this? And she said, it's for fear that we might lose our salvation. That had never occurred to me before. If, someone, if you actually believe that this was the only source of the word of God, the truth of God on this planet, and you run the risk of offending these people, you might lose your one chance for salvation. That's scary. That's scary that people could have that much power. Nevertheless, I'm reminded of, of uh, Jesus' warning uh, regarding the scribes and Pharisees. <coughs> this is from Matthew 23. What we're, what's something we've just finished in our Bible study, where it came from. Uh, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For you neither go in your, yourselves, nor do you allow uh, those who are entering to go in. Okay? These people have done what? They have appointed themselves to be gatekeepers on the kingdom of God. That's very bold, to say the least. Okay? Now, that's not to say that Churches as walls do not have both positive and negative effects. For example, the positive effects that are uh, here is that you have protection, you have safety, you have security, you maintain the status quo, you know what to expect, no one's rocking the boat. You keep the doctrines pure and uncontaminated. There's a comfort zone here. You're comfortable worshiping with like-minded others. No challenges to your comfort zone. There's no risk factor involved at all. Okay, but there are some negative effects as well. Negative effects. There's a litmus test for admission. You can't get in unless you sit with counseling, for example, first. The laity is under control of the ministry, like, like a cult. The behavior of the laity is coerced. The laity is monitored by the ministry, even, as I said, with black armbands, clipboards, and taking names in the parking lot. There's a threat of expulsion, excommunication, damnation, and a fear, that is to say, a fear of the loss of salvation. It restricts innovation, adaptation to change or new ideas or methods. There's stagnation there as well. Ever notice that those churches are all hoary-headed? Our church is growing from the inside out. Okay? There's, uh, with the stagnation, there's no new blood to carry it on. And it fosters a desire to leave, to escape from what's going on. 
that what we want? Is that a church? I'm so glad our little church has outgrown uh, such behavior and is twice removed from such fear and suspicion. Our doors are open to any who would hear the truth, and the drawbridge of love is extended to any who would enter. Now, further down the river, we have some sister cities. The two more cities. These were separated by a great river. But these cities did not build up walls. Instead, they built bridges across the river to facilitate communication, commerce, cooperation. Each city welcomed the visitations of the citizens of the other city, the exchange of ideas, and the economic trade between them. Instead of fear and ignorance, they developed mutual understanding and respect. With trust between the governments and without the walls to restrict and constrain them, each city was free to grow to expand and to fill the countryside. Each city then expanded and eventually became a great and prosperous nation. Further, in the process of building bridges, they learned a lot about cooperation and interdependence. What we learn about constructing physical bridges is a good metaphor for relationships between people. While there are five basic types of bridges, I want to examine only the two most basic of them as analogies of church structure. While the church consists of individual members, not yellow pencils, each person performs a different function within the church for the overall greater good. That is to say, the church should exist in a symbiotic, mutual relationship where each member contributes to and benefits from the well-being of others. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul compares the functioning church to a healthy body fitly joined together. Okay. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of the Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by whatever joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes the growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. That's a church. That's a church. Paul compares it to a body. I'm comparing it to walls and bridges. Okay. Beam bridges. That's the next one. Beam bridges are quick. They're easy to make. They're good for short spans and light loads. But beam bridges experience tension under pressure. So if the beam has a high tensile strength like wood, then it will bend under pressure. But since the beam only has a finite length, it can only bend so far until it pulls itself out of the abutments. Only bend so far till it pulls itself out of the abutment. If the beam has a low tensile strength, like stone, then it remains strong until it reaches its breaking point. Then it snaps without warning and collapses. Okay, by the way, if you do, this is like a 
one of the beams that is here. Uh, this, this is like Highway 11 and some of the uh, bridges that overpasses that come over here. This is on the left-hand side here, Lake Pontchartrain. Ever seen Lake Pontchartrain in Louisiana? This is a huge lake. I mean, it's like hundreds of acres in area, but it's only 10 feet deep. It's only 10 feet deep. So a multi-span beam bridge is appropriate here in this particular case. Likewise, some churches that are composed of standalone members whose faith rests upon the pillars of doctrine who are bent and stretched under the tension load of trials, pulled out of their philosophical and theological abutments, or snapped under the strain and pressure of bearing up to fulfill the purpose of the church, which is, again, to provide a link between the love of God and the love of God. This is how a beam uh, bridge works. I forgot I had this one in there. Okay, uh, here are the abutments on each side. Here's the... Uh, beam that is forming the bridge in between. There's a point load of force here in the middle, and as this point load presses down, it pulls on the uh, uh, beam itself until it pulls the uh, bridge itself out of the abutments, at which point it, the whole thing collapses. Okay. Well, churches, there are some churches that are built on the same model. There's a great gulf fix. Likewise, some churches are composed of standalone members whose faith rests upon pillars of doctrine, who are bent and stretched under the tension load of trials, pulled out of their philosophical theobutment, or snapped under the strain of bearing up to fulfill the purpose of the church, uh, to provide a link between the love of God and the love of nature. That really is the, the, the purpose of the church. The love of God is here, the love of neighbors here, and there's a great gulf in between. And it is the church that forms the linkage between the love of God and the love of nature. There's an old hymn. I mean, we, we sung it many times. At Calvary, okay, it cites the mighty gulf that God did span. It's based upon Luke 16, 26, which I've got on the board. To shore up our member beams, God gave us a, the law as a truss to give us strength. But when we break one of the commandments, we may feel that the trust has failed us, even though it was the members who failed and not the law. In truth, the law makes us stronger Christians, especially after being integrated into our hearts. Matthew 5, 17 and 19 says, Do not think that I have come to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot, nor one tittle, will by no means pass uh, from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments, and teaches men to do so, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Doesn't mean they're going to be excluded, it's just going to be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does, not, uh, does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then James, uh, Curtis has done several, uh, done a series on James. One of the passages from that is James 2.10, which says, For whoever shall keep the whole law, yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. Hmm. 
That's not kind of like the trust that I just showed you on the bridge. If you break one of the supporting members of the trust, then the bridge collapses. Such churches are relatively easy to form, for all they require is a strong uh, is for strong, like-minded persons to come together where each person is a span in the bridge. However, the same independence is also his vulnerability. For if an individual member fails, then the bridge is useless until the span is replaced. On the other hand, such a bridge would be relatively easy to repair since it just requires replacing the broken uh, span. Such a uh, church is really just a collective of strong individual members, so it may lack the unity that transforms the collective into the synergistic whole that is the church. In, in contrast, we have arch bridges. Show you, I've got several arch bridges to show you. The arch bridge, in contrast, is, is more complex to build than a beam bridge because it works under compression instead of tension. It is hard and time-consuming to build, but once built, it is much stronger, more efficient, can support a greater load, and it lasts longer. Indeed, some of the stone uh, arch bridges built by the ancient Roman soldiers some 1,500 years ago still exist today and are in common use. Forces on an arch bridge are transferred to the other stones, ultimately to the abutments, which have to be immovable solid rock because their stresses on the arches want to push the abutments apart horizontally. So the arch requires formwork upon which to build the build until the keystone is put into place. Okay, here's some of the different bridges. I'll show you here. This is a a uh, Cold Spring Canyon uh, near Santa and Inez, uh, California. Notice the arch that's formed here. On the, these are metal arch bridges here. This is New River Gorge Bridge in Fayetteville, West Virginia. That is high. And can you imagine putting that thing together? Okay. This one is the uh, Michael Catalan Pat Tillman Memorial Bridge at Hoover Dam. Again, it's an arch bridge. And notice that the full arch bridge has a very high rise that we have to work with here. Okay. Um, this is the Stone Arch Railroad Bridge in Minneapolis. Okay. Um, here's a couple more. These are. Um, just multi-span arch bridges. Notice again, though, how the um, rise is very, very high on the full arch bridge. Okay. Uh, this one is uh, Solkan Bridge in Western Slovenia. I think Milani is from Slovenia, isn't she? No. Uh, and this one, this one is elegant. That's the only word I can say. This is the Anji Bridge. China's oldest. It was built about 400 AD on our timeline. It is brilliant because what they did is they sunk the arch down so it doesn't have to have the high rise they require. There's a sunken arch there in the middle and uh, it's made of stone and it's still in use today even though it was what built 1500 years ago or more. Wow. This one is pure elegance. It's engineering elegance. Uh, there's some more, a little bit more recent. These are the old car bridge in Hillsborough, New Hampshire. These are only about 400 years old. 400 years old, and they're still in, in very good shape and very good use. Okay. Um, now, here's how arch bridges are built and how they work. Okay. 
These are the abutments here and here. You have to build a framework out of wood or some light matter first because you can't suspend the stones up in midair. You build a framework first and then put the stones on top of them until it reaches the point. At the, t at the top, we put in the keystone, and the keystone then presses all the other stones into the abutments. Each of the stones is slightly trapezoidal in shape, so that it doesn't slip out. So uh, this is how they're built, and this is basically how they work. The abutments here have to be very, very, very st strong, very stable, because as I said, the, uh, the, the compression tends to push the two abutments apart. Okay. Similarly, a church built upon the arch model is stronger and more durable than the one that's built in the beam model. The purpose of this church is still the same, to form a link between the love of God and the love of neighbor. However, in the arch model, each member is a symbiotic stone in the arch, resting on and supported by the other members, fitly joined together into an organic whole, illustrating this principle of synergy. The church is not just an autonomous collective of independent spans, but is an interdependent unity where the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Here, at least until it's fully formed, the church needs the formwork of the Ten Commandments and the keystone of Jesus Christ who holds the whole church together. Now, this, form, this formwork that we have here, which is the law of God, can be removed after the bridge, the archway is, is completely built because it has been incorporated into the body of the church itself. Okay? Once, it is, once we have written the law on our heart, it might not be quite as obvious uh, in present. Like the arch bridge, the church is not fully functional. All the pieces are present, but when they all come together, they become this unshakable entity. This is a church that would be very difficult, if not impossible, to break because each member both bears the burdens and shares the joys of all the other members, which distributes the load across the congregation. Uh, let's go to Galatians 6, 1 through 6. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in a trespass, uh, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in, in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Again, it's the support of the members to correct, to strengthen, to lift up uh, the other members. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For each one shall bear his own load. That's language straight out of bridge technology. Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. A church built upon the arch model has a cohesion which gives it strength. For it functions as a single unit without division in matters of scripture. And that's important. Okay, 1 Corinthians 1.10 says, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you speak the same thing, and there be no divisions among you. You know what happens to, to a bridge that has divisions in it? It collapses. Uh, but ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. 
While the arch bridge is very, very strong and is difficult to break, the bridge's strength of interdependence is also its weakness. For if even a single stone is missing, then the entire structure is affected. If a single stone is missing, it forms a gap, a division in there. And the rebuilding after such a loss would be difficult. Likewise, a church built upon the arch bridge model becomes a family. So it is likely to feel the loss of key members much more acutely and will take considerably more time to recover from the loss of such a member. Just as both types of bridges have their places in the world, so do churches that are built upon these models. Each has its strengths, making it more appropriate in a particular situation, but each also has vulnerabilities that may make it susceptible to collapse or dysfunction in certain environments. As we continue to build, establish churches, and to create new ones, let us be aware of the qualities they possess and where each would be appropriate. Further, unlike bridges, churches can evolve. Churches may start out like a beam and transform itself over time into an arch. They do not have to be locked into a static form. May begin like a beam, as I said, with a few strong members standing firm upon doctrine, doing most of the work, which later evolves into an arch bridge where all the members become involved and take on more crucial roles. In all our construction, though, let us not forget that the purpose of the church is to provide the link between the love of God and the love of neighbors by which structure, by whatever structure is appropriate for this particular situation. Let us also remember that finite walls limit growth and inhibit uh, interaction. So let us not even consider building them in the first place, for they are the product of fear. Bridges, walls are the product of fear. Rather, let us build bridges of cooperation and trust instead of walls of isolation and fear. This is a particularly important attitude for us to have, particularly as we approach the 2020 Feast of Tabernacle. Remember, walls inhibit love, while bridges foster cooperation. Whether we build walls or bridges reveals our character, and character matters. It is past time, past time to tear down the walls that are separating us and invite people into the kingdom of God. There's some walls that are coming down. It is past time to build a bridge.